Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all things training within the industry, and who better to talk to than Nikki Plaskett. Welcome, Nikki, to the show. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you so much for coming on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and exactly what title you hold. Like James said, my name's Nikki Plaskett. I actually have my own business, so I am the director, founder, CEO, however you want to phrase it, of Shaping Behaviour, and I set that company up uh, just over two years ago now, and now I'm a behaviour management consultant so I work primarily with zoos or colleges animal collections and teaching training and training skills to the keepers the the goal of the business is to improve animal welfare through empowering keepers and animal caregivers with knowledge very very cool and it is very much a a brand a a business which is growing in reputation day by day It's, it's something which I I've heard you many times from many different angles and different zoos so some cracking stuff going on at your end now with regard to that journey we we talk about it a lot on this podcast generally no one's lucky enough to just roll into something everyone builds up their personalities their their ambitions and simply their experiences through their workplace so have you got those key journey moments those stepping stones throughout your life so far to get to where you are yeah absolutely I mean to be honest this has been quite a journey for me um I I started out in the industry over 20 years ago now, which is horrifying for me, but there we go. Originally, my life plan was to be a vet. That was, you know, I was a young girl growing up, like absolutely obsessed with animals, loved animals, wanted to do everything that I could to work with animals or help animals. And as so many young people do, I wanted to go into the veterinary science field. And that was my ambition for quite a long time um, when I was growing up. I did some work experience at a local vet. I got a Saturday job at a local vet and I was still very much, yeah, that's definitely what I'm going to go and do. And then when I was in the sixth form doing my A-levels, I went to a conference called vet six and it was like designed for sick form students wanting to go down that route and we had a talk from somebody called Kieran Copeland who came to us from Hun Stanton Sea Life and Marine Sanctuary and he came and talked about their rescue and rehab work that they did with common seals um, off the North Norfolk coast and said that he offered work experience placement so I went trotting down to the front and had a little chat with him as soon as he'd finished and set myself up with a work experience placement. I went for three weeks I stayed for six <laughs> they basically couldn't get rid of me and during the time that I was there I learned that there was so much that you could do with the animals in your care without having to be a vet. I was lucky that they offered me a job. So I was still doing my A-levels at this point. So I basically worked for the seal sanctuary during any holidays that I had. Even during my study leave, I was kind of driving off, basically coming back down to do my exams. So, But yeah, and I, I worked at the seal sanctuary in the end for about a year and a half. And I got to be part of some amazing rehab work, releasing seal pups back into the, the North Norfolk coast and um, back into the wash. And I learned loads. I also got put into a position where I had to do some public speaking, which was something that at the time I wasn't super confident with not that anyone would believe that if they heard me talk now but at the time I was you know a bit nervous and a bit worried about doing that and they were like no well this is what you've got to do and off I went and I started doing all the talks and actually when I left the sea life centre I was offered a summer temp position at London Zoo which was 
incredibly lucky I hadn't volunteered there I hadn't done I hadn't paid my dues I suppose but I'd applied it was on the events team so that was their their show team basically and because of the fact that I had this public speaking experience and was comfortable on a microphone by that point I was given a chance and I got a six-month contract at London Zoo and off I went in fact it was more like an eight-month contract but anyway I went off to London Zoo Roger Tomlinson who was the then events manager he said oh what I really want is people to come and do talks at different animal enclosures during the day. During my lunch hour, I would get up and go to the pelican enclosure and do a pelican talk. And that was kind of, you know, part of my role while I was there for my six months, which was really fun, except for when everyone was, you know, having their nice restful lunch time. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go and do a talk now. But yeah, I mean, it was it was great for me. It was great that they gave me that chance. When my contract ended at London Zoo that very first summer, they did offer me a permanent position, but I already had flights booked to Australia and I was like no I'm going to Australia you know I'm I'm 18 years old I'm off I'm gonna go and see the world so I disappeared off saw the world came back and went to Colchester Zoo got a job I actually applied for a role on the elephant team because that was what was available so I applied for that I interviewed for it and they said to me oh do you know what we've actually got a role on our falconry team and you know you've done a bit of bird flying at London so maybe you'd be a good fit for that team so I joined their falconry team which was Birds of Prey, Wolves and Tigers at the time it was a, a really great experience because I got to work with a, a random collective mix of species there that I probably wouldn't have had experience with. Obviously, if I'd gone into the elephant keeping role, it would have just been elephants, which would have been great, but maybe my career would have taken a different trajectory. So yeah, I was at Colchester Zoo for the best part of a year, probably. And then I went back to London Zoo uh, and I did another season at London and then I left. And I actually left the zookeeping industry just for a short window of time. And I went into restaurants, which I was making more money working in restaurants than I was in my zoo jobs. At the time, it felt like the right choice for me to make. Um, it wasn't. <laughs> but I realised that and I left the restaurants and I went back to London Zoo for the third time. <laughs> I don't know who's more silly there than for rehiring me again or me for keeping on leaving and going back. But anyway, this time it stuck and I stayed there for nearly six years I think and I moved to what was then Mammal South so that was primates carnivores and a lot of hoof stock as well so it was a really diverse section which was really fun but one of the really cool things I got to do in that team was I was able to bring some of my training experience and start helping with some training projects and you know I'd be working on a section and we were trying to train the spider monkeys for a conscious ultrasound without having to knock her out without having to split the the animals from each other and I got to do that and it was really cool and um, I worked closely with Jim Mackey on this who was still working on the events team I don't think he was in his current role at that point but you know Jim had taught me a lot when I was working on the section and he had sort of said oh yeah no absolutely Nikki you'll be able to help you with this training so I was checking in with Jim like oh okay so this is what I'm suggesting like is this what you'd suggest as well and just like making sure that I was going down the right route and you know we managed to get a conscious ultrasound from the spider monkey in I think it took us eight weeks which sounds like quite a long time to some people but actually when you've got an animal that has got a history of not wanting a vet. And not only did we get the vet staff in, but we got them bringing a pulse ultrasound machine in. And we were able to get this monkey to press her belly right up against the mesh 
so that we could start doing an ultrasound on her. It was really cool. And I'm so excited that I got to be a part of that. That was sort of one of my main first training projects, I guess. So when I left London Zoo in 2011, I was really lucky. And I went over to America and worked with Steve Martin from Natural Encounters. So every year for 25 years, Steve and his team ran a like a road show at the State Fair of Texas called the Birds of the World Show. And basically this is like this huge production where the State Fair of Texas is this massive, huge statewide thing in Dallas. And Steve would drive from Florida to Dallas with a bunch of birds, a bunch of staff. He would then have interns come from all over the country and occasionally the world. Um, I was one of the international ones. And he basically would have all of these people turn up in Dallas. We would build the animal enclosures. We would put the birds in them, do all the husbandry, do everything that needed to be done. The birds would be trained for three weeks. Then we'd do a show four times a day for three weeks. And then you'd pack it all down and drive the birds back. So like, you know, a lot. And I was really lucky that he chose me as one of his interns for 2011. So I got to go out there and do that. And actually, I think probably working with Steve and his team changed the path that I took because I was already super passionate about training. I'd already spent a lot of time working with birds, but the way that... Steve and his team worked with the birds was different to anything that I'd done before. Working with free flight birds gave me a slightly different perspective to animal training and sort of a bit more investment in observation skills, which are so important for everybody. Learning to recognise those really tiny, subtle signs that your animal's not 100% comfortable and changing what you do before it escalates. And that's something that I think has really helped me grow and develop in my career. Came back home and then in 2012, I then started working for Paradise Wildlife Park. I got the head of birds role, the section leader for the bird team, because of my experience with Steve. And I stayed there for nine years. And, you know, I sort of carved myself out a little niche at Paradise. You know, when I went in, the they had bird shows. I decided that I wanted to shake things up a bit. I thought mm, we could definitely do things a bit differently and like I said you know we're always evolving our knowledge and we always want to see if we can do things better and so we did uh, <laughs> we sort of revolutionized the the care and husbandry and the shows at paradise and um, in those first few years I moved away from tethering any of the birds once we weren't tethering anybody anymore and birds were living in aviaries well if you're flying them and you're not holding on to their dressers, do they need to have their dressers on? You know, we removed them. We removed our anklets and dressers, took out both traditional falconry equipment and measures and trained using positive reinforcement techniques. Because if you can do it with parrots and you can do it with lions and you can do it with great apes, like, you know, why can't you do it with birds of prey? Well, I mean, you can. That's that's basically the answer. And once we'd got the bird shows up and running and, you know, I was comfortable and happy with the way that they were going approached the head keepers and was like, mm, so maybe I can help the other sections with their training as well and basically created like a training coordinator role for myself whereby I then spent a lot of time working with other section leaders and their teams and yeah that sort of was probably the last five years maybe of my time at Paradise and I decided that really this was what I wanted to do with my life and my career so in 2021 post-covid obviously I, I stayed at the zoo all through covid I had I had my plan in place to set up the business before covid struck and uh, 
Fortunately, I held off, didn't leave and yeah, stayed all through the COVID lockdowns and everything, you know, which was a completely different way of working, of course. But yeah, 2021, when the zoos all reopened again for, I think, the third time and the the final time, I decided, right, this is my window. This is my moment to head off on my own and do what I want to do. So I set up the company. I left Paradise on good terms. Um, You know, I still pop back and visit. I'm still in touch with several of the staff there. And yeah, and I set up Shape and Behaviour. And in a nutshell, two years later, here we are. So, (laughs) What a journey. I mean, to start with, looking back at that starting point, you've packed so much in. A great message for anyone listening is that, you know, yes, you can get through uni and then get volunteering the right way and it is crazy at the start it's probably the route you've gone get it all at once you know go through it obviously that debate of whether you should go for education whether you should go for experience what's more valuable I think you've just chucked it all in one basically um, which is it's great to hear I mean going off that then have you got any any advice from that whole journey from those early days of that seal sanctuary all the way through to paradise and now your own business to your younger self to the listeners listening in is there any little gems you've got learn as much as you can from as many people as you can I mean I think that there's people out there who start working in one zoo and they stay in that same zoo for the whole of their career and that's great you know if they get to progress in that zoo and they learn loads of things about that zoo and those animals and that is fantastic but for me the fact that I worked in lots of different collections under lots of different managers, I saw different styles of doing things. I learned from different people. I learned different techniques, different strategies with different species. I think that really helped me to shape the person that I am today. And you know what? Like get qualifications as well. You can do them while you're working. I actually, I didn't go to uni back in the day when all of my friends did because I was too busy working. I've since done a degree with the Open University. I did that while I was working at Paradise and completed it in 2021 because, you know, I could. And so I started doing that degree and I thought, yeah, I can do this. And I did it whilst working and it was hard, but I did it. And I graduated with a 2-1, which I was thrilled about. So I don't know quite how that happened, but anyway. And, you know, I've taken vocational qualifications. So when I was at London Zoo, they were doing the the Sparshalt course. In fact, it was called the Advanced National Certificate in the Management of Zoo Animals. So before the DIMSA even existed. Um, I think I was either the first or second year that took that course. And when I was at London, because that was they were putting people on that course to get to be a qualified keeper. I've taken Dr. Susan Friedman's Living and Learning with Animals course, um, which is fantastic. Susan's such a great speaker and she's so she's got such a good way of explaining things and never, ever making you feel silly if you don't understand something. You know, she's yeah, she's a great, a great speaker and a great teacher. And once you've once you've taken that course, you can audit it and take it again as many times as you like for a much smaller fee, um, which actually the the money goes to a charity. So, you know, it's a, a really cool, cool thing to do. And also through the IATCB, the International Avian Trainers Certification Board, I'm a certified professional animal trainer and bird trainer. So get those qualifications, but do them while you're working because experience is so valuable. Work with different people. Even if you learn that that's the way that you don't want to do something, that is still valuable to you. And, you know, I'm sure we all have those moments where we think, oh, maybe maybe that's not the way that I would do that. But it's still useful information to see how somebody else is doing it and results that they've got from it. So, yeah, that's that's my advice, really. I guess don't give up, you know, <laughs> learn what you can do, what you can. And yeah. And travel, obviously, that always. For sure. I mean, obviously, with that, an amazing journey you've had. Is there one trait? 
that is inside yourself, inside your, your personality, you want a tribute, which has allowed you to, to go outside your comfort zone, to, to progress and to, to flourish to the degree you're in today? I mean, I think that I'm quite a determined person. Some people would probably say stubborn. I don't like to give up. So if something is hard, I think that probably means it's really worth having. And it almost makes me want to work harder at it. And things don't come easy to most people. You do have to work at things. And even if something comes easily, there'll be something else that you struggle with. So, you know, if you're prepared to put the work in and put the time in and not give up on something at the first hurdle, to be honest, I think a lot of zookeepers are very determined people, certainly people that I've met and worked with. They've all jumped through a lot of hoops to get to where they are now. But I think that helps, you know, be, and be adaptable as well. Like, don't be afraid to change those goalposts. I'm not a vet. You know, and actually I changed those goalposts a long time ago. Over the years, every now and again, I've gone, hmm, I wonder if I had become a vet, but I'm not and I didn't. And actually at this point, that's not even what I want from my career. So, you know, don't be afraid to change your goalposts and say, actually, this is what I'm going to do now. And I'm determined to do it. So I'm going to go and do it. Obviously, you've had a lot of highs, a lot of highs. And with highs, generally, I wouldn't say lows, but there's a lot of moments where you have to learn, I guess you... You do make mistakes to a certain degree. How have you learned to embrace them and, and push yourself forward? So um, my friend Ari Bailey, who works for Steve over at Natural Encounters, has a great saying. And she says, mistakes are an opportunity to start again with more information. That is something which I kind of carry with me. And it's not always possible because we do definitely I think as zookeepers we take a lot on ourselves you know we're responsible for the animals that we're looking after it's on us to make sure that they've got everything that they need and we are only human and of course we make mistakes and sometimes things happen and we don't notice something or we don't get to the enclosure at the time that we intended to and by the time we do something's happened you know and it is very easy to take that and put it on yourself and feel a lot of guilt for those moments. Um, and I definitely do that. It's healthy to feel guilt about something. If you, you know, if you haven't done as well as you could for an animal, obviously we're going to feel guilt for that. What isn't healthy is letting that define who you are and define the way that you do your job going forward. So we have to be better at being kind to ourselves and accepting that we do all make mistakes and making sure that we learn from them because you don't want to make the same mistake twice. Certainly not when animals' lives or well-being is at stake. So, you know, if something happens, you have to be able to say, wow, okay, that was awful and I really wish that I'd done things differently in the future that won't ever happen again. We'll dive in then to the, the real core of what this episode's about and we'll go into training. Obviously, to really dial it back, what is training in a zoo? I mean, to, to the most basic person, obviously straight away, everyone will go straight for clicker, training stick, uh, maybe positive, negative reinforcement. You know, th there's the basic stuff floating around, but what is animal training? Animal training is an integral part of modern day zookeeping. It is something that we are all doing all the time without even realising it because our animals have got far better observation skills than we have. They're always looking at us for information. When we approach the enclosure, what could we possibly be coming to do when we're approaching the enclosure? Yep, some people will always train with a target stick and a clicker. I tend not to most of the time, to be honest, because you don't need them, right? You don't need a target stick. You don't need a clicker to train a keen observation skill. You need a goal. I always like to think that I'm going to make it as easy as possible for the animal to do what I want them to do. So I could give you a 25 point plan for how to train this animal to go from A to B. 
or do you know what how about we just change the place that we feed the animal and then I'll look it's gone over there already you know like why train if you don't have to so training is it's it's more about behavior management you know it's yes there is fantastic training going on for medical veterinary husbandry procedures and they're really really important but a lot of the time training is making our lives easier it's making the animals lives easier it's communication with your animal right it's okay so this is what I want the animal to do how can I make it as easy as possible for the animal to understand that that's what I want and that's generally how I approach most of my training because actually it's something that I want the animal to do nine times out of ten it isn't necessarily something that the animal wants to do so I need to be able to communicate effectively very well summed up very well summed up in a nice little nutshell there now obviously with the training then uh, you've touched on it the animal generally is the one running the show uh, most of the time but with regards to in your experience whether it be throughout your whole career or, or in the current day in the current business you're in and the different zoos you've worked with do you have any examples for the listeners about different, maybe, I, I guess, problem solving you've had to do with animals and how you've come about counteracting it? Um, so problem solving. Problem solving is something that happens constantly, I think, because behaviour never happens the same way twice. You know, even when we've got an animal that's trained to a very high criteria of behaviour, there will be variation in the way that that behaviour is uh, delivered. And often we as humans reinforce something that maybe we didn't necessarily want to reinforce you know you can get like we call them superstitious behaviors where you've accidentally trained um for it let's take a parrot for example and you want the parrot to spin but one time when it was learning the spin it lifted its foot up before it did a spin and now you've got a parrot that when you cue it to spin thinks it's got to lift its foot before it spins okay so you know to problem solve that you might go right back and actually reinforce the parrot for having both feet down on the branch before you offer the spin cue then maybe you would go back from your spin cue and almost go right back to the beginning of shaping that behavior again once you've got that feet down on the floor in fact I was just working with the Hemsley Conservation Centre um, I do consults down there quite often and they've got two Tera which are really cool species by the way anyone who knows Tera knows that they are I mean I don't want to use labels but they're animals which are constantly busy, right? They are moving all the time. Trying to get a Tera to stay still is quite like trying to get me to stop talking. Um, and so we, we're trying to train the Tera to do an open mouth because one of them has got a problem with her tooth. And we want to be able to examine that without having to put her under a general anaesthetic. So we want to be able to check it, get photos of it and monitor it in case she does need any treatment down the line. In order to start doing the open mouth training, we've decided, I thought the best thing to do is probably to try and teach them to be still. So we are actually using a target stick for this because that gives them something to focus on. The target stick in this case will be the basis for the other behaviours. So the target stick means stay here and look at this target until we tell you not to. But what happened when I was uh, on my last visit is that as the staff were offering the target, the terror are starting to climb up the mesh to get to the target. And if they can't get high enough, they put their arms through and try to swipe at the target stick. Now, that's not what we want. So instead, we started problem solving that. Okay, well, what do we want, right? What do we want the animal to do instead? We want them to have four feet on the floor and bring their nose to the target because we're going to use the, the target so that we can eventually get the open mouth. So we went right back to the beginning and I just got the team to reinforce for four feet on the floor. And then we start lifting the target up, but nowhere near the mesh. So we're not saying come to the target. We're just moving the target slightly so the animal can see it moving and reinforcing for having four feet on the floor still. 
And then you can gradually bring that target in. So you're rebuilding the behavior once you've reduced the criteria and taken it back to feet are on the floor. This is what you want. Because otherwise that behavior is just going to escalate and then you're going to have the animal grabbing hold of the target through the mesh or trying to bite at the target as it approaches. Again, that's a behavior that we don't want and that we could very easily accidentally reinforce if they're also doing the other thing that we want. So that's a, a good example of a, a problem solving. Yeah, often problem solving is just looking at the situation. I'm sure everyone's got their little notepads out, writing away, taking note of everything you've got to say, because it is, it's super interesting what you've got to say. And I, I guess the, the final thing on this before we we'll delve into this next part of the podcast is, with regards to anyone wanting to learn, anyone wanting to, to further themselves as, as an animal trainer and, and learn more about their animals, I guess, what, what can they do? What can they do to further that training skill and I, I guess learn more? Develop their observation skills, like spend a few minutes just watching your animals. I know everybody's busy. I know there's never enough hours in the day and there's always too much to do, but watch your animals, right? Develop those observation skills. See what the animals do when you're approaching the enclosure. Are they are, are they approaching you or are they retreating from you? Why? Do you know why? Do you need to know why? Or can you just alter the way that you approach the enclosure to get them to want to be approaching you? Um, so yeah, build your observation skills up. That will give you a lot of information about those animals. Yeah, absolutely. Do some reading. Do some reading on the natural history of those animals. Of course, that's always going to help you. But knowing your individuals is really important when it comes to training. Build your relationship with those animals because half the time, if you've got a great relationship, the animal will, you know, yes, recall training, super important. But if you've got an animal that looks forward to you approaching the enclosure, you can call it to the other side of the enclosure and it will come running and you haven't had to go through like writing a recall training protocol because you've got a relationship with that animal and it's come to see you anyway. So build a relationship with the animals, observe them do some reading in your own time um karen pryor's got a great book called don't shoot the dog it's quite an old book now but there's still quite a lot of relevant information in there it's something that i often recommend to people starting out on their training journey there's the animal training academy podcast which is great there's obviously this now this podcast and there's websites with lots of useful information on it dr susan friedman has got behaviorworks.org and she's got loads of information on there that's free access you can read the papers and it's always useful to talk to different people as well because everybody will come at things in a slightly different way so that's what I would say ask questions don't ever be afraid to ask a silly question because anybody that truly wants to help you develop will not make you feel silly for asking a question very very well put and, and I think that leads perfectly onto the big questions there's a part of this podcast where we tackle a few of the, the deeper questions in the industry not usually answered but I don't think they're going to stress you out too much so we'll see how we go uh, the, the first one's quite a, a simple one, I think, for you, and that is how is an animal's welfare actually enhanced by training? Pretty much every way, to be honest. Um, I mean, you know, when we're training with our animals, we're working closely with them. We've got a better relationship with them. We are able to identify signs that something might be wrong much, much quicker because we're working more closely with them. You know, animals, there's a lot of animals out there who are masters of disguise. They're very good at hiding signs and symptoms that they're not feeling 100%. And certainly with some species, particularly with a lot of birds, you know, they will hide the fact that they don't feel well until it's too late and then you can't do anything about it. If you've got a good relationship with that animal, you're going to notice that maybe that animal isn't responding to you the same as normal. Maybe it's sitting on a different perch when you get to the enclosure in the morning. Maybe it's down on the floor. You know, all these things which you're going to notice more quickly because of your relationship with them. Also, with all of the, the veterinary procedures that we can now do without having to restrain our animals or, you know, whether that's physical manual restraint or whether 
whether it's chemical restraint, how much stuff can we do now without having to knock our animals out or physically hold on to them? Like, it's incredible. That can only be a good thing for animal welfare, right? You know, you're, co- you're getting your animals to cooperate with you in their own care. You're giving them control. Control is a primary reinforcer. We all need it, right? So you're giving that animal something that it needs and has huge amounts of value for, and you're still getting the procedures that your vet team needs you to do done, right? That's incredible. That's it also reduces your stress on top of that. So, you know, you're you're gonna cut down the stress that your animal experiences. You're going to cut down your own stress from a public perception perspective as well. You know, how much better is it to watch a keeper team go and try do a training session with an animal where they give it an injection rather than go and dart it or take nets or, you know, go into enclosure and catch the animal? Yeah, very well put. Number one, smashed out of the park. You've achieved that one. Uh, no, number two is something from a keeping point of view. I'm sure you hear this a lot. I don't have enough time. The the job is too, you know, I've got too much going on. And, and sometimes some people, some keepers view it very difficult to almost in their brain intertwine it into the role. Is it possible to put training into the role and not view it as a separate entity? Yeah, absolutely. But that's my answer. Yes, it absolutely is. If we view training as like I said, an integral part of modern day zookeeping and animal care. That means that it's something that we should be building into our role. There are husbandry hacks, you know, like build your training session into your husbandry. If you're trying to train a shift or a recall, do that when you get to the enclosure before you start going in to do your cleaning session. I I know that everybody has got a lot to do. I am fully aware of that. And I know there's never enough hours in the day. But if training your animal, building a relationship with your animal is a priority, then it's something that we really do need to be making time for. And maybe there's other areas that, you know, you could be more efficient in, in order to give you that extra few minutes just to spend. Training sessions don't need to be long. Most animals' attention span, you want to be doing three to five minute training sessions maximum with most species. Who can't find three three minutes a day in their husbandry routine you know very very well put and once again a really great answer to kick that one off and I, I guess the next one it links into what we've discussed already obviously the the zookeeping role of the modern day is so diverse you know you were expected to be educationists conservationists husbandry experts and, and so on is the role of an animal trainer separate to an animal keeper so it's a good question um i think that all animal keepers should be animal trainers because like i said we're all training all the time even when we don't realize it because our animals are learning from us i do think that the role of a training coordinator or a training supervisor should be a little bit separate because i think that that person's job is to coordinate you know, their their job is to make sure that everybody is training in the same way. Everybody's got the knowledge to be a person that can problem solve and be that extra pair of eyes. Whether you have that on site as part of your staff or you have somebody come in and do that. I think that can be a separate role. But if you're an animal keeper, you have got the best relationship with your animal. Therefore, you're the perfect person to do training sessions. If I'm an animal trainer and that's all I do and I don't know this animal, but I'm going to come and train it. It's going to take me longer to get that, you know, that that relationship built with the animal in order to get the behaviour. And also, I'm not going to see all of the things that are happening during that animal's day. Whereas if I'm that animal's keeper, I can fit my training sessions into my husbandry when I'm there anyway. And I am fully in tune with that animal's day, what happens during the day, the way that the animal reacts to certain stimuli. I already know all of that. I've already got a relationship. Therefore, it's much, much easier for me to be training. So, yes. Animal keepers and animal trainers should absolutely be the same thing. Super answer. Now, the the next one, 
it's quite broad and I, I think i know what you're going to answer this one but we'll see how we go and that is are there any species out there which do not benefit from training the only species that i would say i wouldn't want to train is something that's going to be released into the wild you know if you're working with a species that's on a breed and release program then actually in order for that animal to be successful in its future life it probably needs to not have a great relationship with people that's not to say that it's treated badly by people but it probably doesn't need to be an animal that wants to approach people otherwise train everything you know and yes there are zoos out there who are doing some great work with breeding release programs but the vast majority of species in zoos and individuals in zoos are not going to be released into the wild the vast majority and that means that actually you can train them all and that goes for fish and reptiles and I mean I haven't done any invert training yet but I'm sure it's possible you know um <laughs> as long as you're not trying to train them to do something that they're not physically capable of you know just moving A to B you can absolutely train an invert to do that you know as long as you've got your motivation right so yeah I think you can try any animal that you're working with unless it's about to be released into the wild environment which let's face it there's not many wild environments left anymore are there sadly yeah sadly not and then what i will say a cracking answer um what i expected so yeah there you go now we're on the final one we're nearly through these big questions so very very close and that last one is we've touched on it already you've, you've spoken about obviously a good enclosure design will help with everything is there anything within an enclosure which you would consider really important for animal training? I know obviously this will vary depending on species, but is there anything in particular which is transferable? Like I said earlier on, like antecedent arrangement is everything, you know, like always look at the enclosure and how, how can you alter the enclosure to make it as easy as possible for your animal to do what you want. I think probably something which is sometimes overlooked is access to the enclosure. So, you know, you might have windows that are there for the public viewing and they might be glass windows but that doesn't really give you access as a trainer and if you want to do a training session up at the window so that your public can see you've got no way of reinforcing that animal i'm a huge fan of protector contact training like i love it protector contact is not just to keep us safe from animals it's to keep our animals safe from us as well and i think that having an opportunity to do protector contact training with species that aren't necessarily perceived as being dan a danger to humans is great because you can achieve a lot and demonstrate the principles of training safely for everybody. So I would say probably something which needs building into every enclosure is an access panel. So whether that's a window, a piece of mesh that you can padlock shut and open in order to have access to an animal to do blood draws or whatever, or just a mesh area preferably that's got a standoff barrier around it so you don't get any members of the public thinking that they can get involved but you know somewhere some access to the animal enclosure in an ideal world you want more than one of those because you might find that your animal isn't comfortable yet coming that close to where the public are standing so you might want to have several of these training panels so that you can do your training from different areas of the enclosure that'll also mean that you can teach your animal to move from one to the other on cue which is also great. It's a great way of eliciting movement as well. If you've got an animal that wants to spend all of its time asleep in one spot, you can call it to different training panels and do different training sessions, getting the animal up and about, moving around so that visitors can then see the animal, which is always very important for management, obviously. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I guess access. So everyone's scribbling those down and uh, that finishes off the big questions. You've made it, you've got through it. And this leads us to the final segment of this podcast episode, and that is the quick fire round. The listeners will quickly be learning. This can go two ways. It can either go as it suggests as a quick fire round or 
as they're getting more used to, things can explode into conversation. And I'm sure this one probably won't be much. But we'll see how we go. Uh, the first one is your favourite animal. My favourite animal to work with is whichever one I'm working with at the time. Although I have to say there is a particular barn owl at Paradise Wildlife Park who has got a special space in my heart because she's my favourite. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's always one. There's always one. Okay, so the next one then is... In your opinion, what's the best side of this industry? What's the best side of this industry? I mean, we get to do some pretty cool stuff, right? We get to work up close and personal with some really exciting animals. We get to learn from those animals all the time. I think that is probably the best part of the job, you know, learning from the animals that we're working with, building those relationships with those animals. That can also be the worst part of the job because nothing lives forever, but that is the best part of the job for me. Totally. Now, this next one... I will apologise, it's not a quick fire one. And that is, what is your top tip for mental health and well-being? Probably be kind to yourself, which is really hard to do at times, um, as I'm sure we've all found over the years. But yeah, you know, accepting the fact that we are only human, we will all make mistakes. And like I said earlier, they're an opportunity to start again with more information. So try not to let those mistakes destroy you define who you are as a person or as a keeper be kind to yourself and also set boundaries I think as we as we get older as we've been in the industry for longer we get better at recognizing a work-life balance and the things that are important to us outside of work and that we need to give ourselves time to enjoy those things when we first start out we don't do that because we're so enthusiastic and so excited that we absolutely want to work 24-7. We want to do everything we can to show that we're worthy of that job and to show that, you know, our progression and where we want to get to. And that's really important. But sometimes that leads to people working themselves too hard and not giving themselves a break and spending their days off still, you know, doing work, which, you know, yeah, great, you're dedicated, that's amazing, but also take some time for yourself. It's not healthy to be constantly working. Yeah, very much so. And uh, this is the one question that I'm loving for this little segment. I'm going to spin it around. And for the animal trainers, this is something which was sparked by one of the fellow animal trainers. I'm going to chuck it at you as well. What is your top tip for mental health and well-being for our animals? Ooh, I like that. That's a good question. Um, top tip for mental health and well-being for our animals. Um, well, I think having a good relationship with their keepers, having an environment which um, allows them to, to demonstrate their natural species-specific behaviours, trying to make their social groups as appropriate as they should be. Um, it's not always possible, but we can we can only do what we can do. And if we have that on our radar as something that we should be looking at, then trying to make sure that we've got social groupings set up, allowing those natural behaviours to happen, having good relationships with our keepers and having like mental stimulation throughout the day as well. We also don't want our animals spending the whole day just waiting for a training session to happen. So, you know, training sessions are a great part of building welfare, but they're not the only thing, you know, we need to make sure that everything else in the environment is stimulating and the animal has time to be an animal as well. Really well summed up for both the keeper and the animal. Well done. That was a real curveball. Uh, so thank you very much. Okay. So the next one then is, in this industry we work in, what do you still feel we need to improve? We need to improve on our appreciation of animal keepers and the working conditions that our animal keepers are in. For a long time, I think animal keepers have been undervalued. And historically, there's, you know, people are 
thought of as oh well you must be uneducated if all you do is clear up animal poo and that's categorically not true you know we know we know as does everybody that's working in zoos out there how much work goes into our jobs and how much learning and how much time in you know how much of our own time we spend developing our skills I think zoos in general need to get better at recognizing that I think there are zoos out there that are doing their best now to try and appreciate their keepers more we probably also need to change society's perception of animal keepers as well um because same that that sort of stigma might might still stick in certain circles but yeah appreciate your keepers give them time off give them an appropriate wage so that they can afford to live in suitable accommodation close to the zoo without having to spend hours commuting each day um these are big problems. This is not a quick fire answer, I'm afraid, because I don't know how you fix them. I think there is a shift. I think things are starting to change, but slowly. And I think, yeah, giving the keepers the ability to be able to have a quality of life outside of work and set those boundaries and being allowed to do that without that being a problem for the managers or for the team or whatever. Um, I think that's that's definitely the way that we could improve in the industry could not agree more some uh hopefully some up and coming things to come in this industry now this next question could take you anywhere globally and that is what zoo in this amazing world we live in would you like to visit and why i'm lucky i've been to quite a lot of places actually one of my favorites is san diego wild animal park uh, the safari park um i've got some friends who work there and that was brilliant um i've never been to um leipzig zoo and i've always heard quite good things about their animal exhibits don't know much about their training program um really for me i'd like to go to every zoo and work with them all on their training <laughs> help the keepers help everyone develop um and i love to travel so really the opportunity for me to go anywhere is is something that i relish truly said by a zookeeper wanting to see as many zoos as possible very much so very good answer now the next one i need you to put on your mystic hat and that's in 20 to 30 years do you still see zoos being the same as we see them today to be honest i actually hope not because i think that we should always be learning and doing better and i think if you look at the last 30 years zoos are vastly different from the way that they were 30 years ago they're different from they were 20 years ago when i started working in zoos and that can only be a good thing for our animals so i think as long as we continue to be open to evolving and growing and doing things better zoos will get better i mean i i hope that zoos still exist in 30 years because I think they're important. I think they do some really good conservation work and they give people an opportunity to see animals that in 30 years might not exist in the wild, you know? So I really do hope that they're still going, but I hope that they change for the better. I hope we have bigger, better enclosures that meet the animals' needs in an appropriate way for some places. Um, I hope that we have keepers who are appreciated and who are loving their jobs, getting to wear many hats during the day and doing a fantastic job in all of them. Um, I hope every zoo has got an animal training coordinator or a training program for every species that they've got, making sure that those animals have all got choices in the way that they interact with their exhibits and their keepers. And yeah, even the public, you know, if we've, if we've still got zoos, then we still need to have the public coming in to fund those zoos. But hopefully public perception of zoos will also have changed. For sure. I think with the sector of states obviously coming in here in the UK and Obviously, you've got the accreditation scheme now with trainers and so on. I think it's all hopefully leading to one thing, and that's exactly that. Uh, a brighter future, more than what we've already got. So some hopeful good stuff to come. Now, we're on that second to last question. We're very, very close to the end of this podcast. 
And the second to last question is, who in the industry is your idol? I mean, I guess it's probably hard to narrow it down to just one because there are so many people out there who are doing great work and there's so many people who've influenced my journey and where I am today. I've already mentioned Steve Martin, you know, I think he, he definitely changed the trajectory of my career, just being able to have that opportunity to go and work for him. And I now sit on the board of directors for the IAACE with him. So I, you know, still get to liaise with him quite a lot, which is pretty cool. I learned a lot from Jim when I worked with him at London Zoo, Jim Mackey. I learned a lot from working with Tom Clark at Paradise, you know. I think somebody that we learn from is my idol. And, you know, for me, that learning doesn't always come from somebody that's more experienced than me. Sometimes I learn, well, I often learn things from people who are less experienced than me because they know more about something than I do. And I think for me, an idol is somebody that I can learn something from. And I can't really give you just one name, I'm afraid. There's so many people out there. <laughs> no, you're not the first and you're not the last to answer the question like that. That was some, some cracking names and some very lovely words. So no, very, very nice. Now we're on that last question. We're going to dial it down. I, I am going to stand by what I usually say. I think this is going to be your hardest question of the whole podcast. And that's, I want you now to summarise this whole industry for us all in only three words. <sighs> three words to summarise the industry. Um, okay, so let's say progressive, evolving, important. Solid. I think they have three words to sum up that industry very, very well and brings us to the end of this podcast. Now, hopefully you've enjoyed your time, Nikki, but I can speak on behalf of myself and the listeners. Thank you so, so much for coming on, sharing your knowledge, sharing your journey. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you very much, James. I've really enjoyed talking to you. No, thank you. Uh, hopefully we'll get you on again very soon and take care of yourself until then. Great. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode. What an amazing guest and an amazing time we had. Now, if you have enjoyed it, please do subscribe on Instagram, Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101. I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.